This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Wigs, I'm your host Jim Minns. This month in a slightly late episode, and apologies to those listeners who hang out for each new one, The Wigs tackled two fairly massive policy topics and a new decision of the High Court. First up is The Voice. The Wigs discussed the proposal to insert into the Australian Constitution a new clause that will provide for a body that will be consulted on legislation that will affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Secondly, the Albanese government's proposed National Anti-Corruption Commission is analysed. And lastly, we will hear about a new High Court case, SDCV vs Director General of Security 2022 HCA 32, where the High Court upheld the constitutional validity of a provision in federal law that requires the federal court to withhold from an appellant certain information that was the basis for the decision the court is reviewing. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of The Wigs. I'm your host, Jim Minns. It's fantastic to be with you today, uh, and a very warm welcome to the uh, one or two listeners just passing through trying to look for dirt on one of our guests, sorry, one of our regulars, Mr. Stephen Lawrence. How are you, sir? How are you going? Yeah, really good. Good to be here, guys. Shout out to all our listeners, every single one of yes, them. Even the one, them. one, even the one is the first time. It's yeah. Felicity Graham and <laughs> Ravi, what's Ravi's surname? Graham. Ravi Graham. Hello. Hello. It's great to be in the studio. It's great to have you both here. Welcome. How are you feeling? Great. Excellent. Yeah. Great. Cool. Cue hey, some squawks from Ravi. I love it. I love it. It's fantastic. Emmanuel Kirkasharian. Jim. How are you, sir? I'm really happy to be here. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. It's good. It's good to get the band back together. Yeah. I always like these sessions. It's like therapy for me. It's good. Should, uh, should Just don't bill me. Uh, look, we've got a jam-packed show as per usual. Uh, you lot have done a lot of research, and I've watched intently as the WhatsApp chat has updated about what that research is. So I look forward to that research in practice today as you guys discuss exactly what it is you're going to discuss. And the first topic goes to Emmanuel Kirkasharian. Take it away, sir. Oh, okay. Well, um, I've got the voice as a topic. Yes. So, uh, over four days in May 2017... I remember, yes. ...the First Nations National Constitution Convention met... Uh, to discuss and agree on an approach to constitutional reforms to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Right. Um, there was a fair bit of consultation that had gone in, that had occurred before that. Um, there was dialogues that apparently engaged 1,200 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander delegates. There was a lot of consultation that went over a lot of period of time. Um and in 2017, shortly in the course of this convention, they issued something called the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Yeah. Hey, sorry, can I just ask you what the date was again? 2017. Yeah, do you remember the month? May. So it was, okay, so it was, wasn't quite upcoming uh, federal election at the time. It was just, the federal election was 2019. It was About a year out. Was yeah, it yeah. Or I think it was 20... Yeah, 19. Yeah, in 2019. Okay, cool. Yeah, and the cool. Libs were in power at that stage? Yes, yes. Yeah. It was Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Or what could it have been Malcolm Turnbull? I have no idea. Turnbull, 2017, wasn't it? I think it was Turnbull. Yeah. Okay. The statement reads as follows. We gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention 
coming from all points of the southern sky. Make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land, or Mother Nature, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom, remain attached thereto, and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? The peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for our future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. This audio is from Midnight Oil's YouTube channel entitled The Uluru Statement from the Heart, read by First Nations collaborators. It was pretty well received, generally speaking, by communities um, in Australia, uh, but 
Having said that, there was certainly some criticisms made, including by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at the time. Um, now, Senator Thorpe, I'm not sure that she was a senator at the time. I, th- I don't think she was. No. Um, she is described as storming out in various media, uh, storming out of the conference, uh, saying that... Um, we as sovereign First Nations people reject constitutional recognition. We do not recognise the occupying power or their sovereignty. Um, there was a fair bit of criticism about, uh, in effect, there not being a proper or firm call for a treaty in the statement. The statement does say... Uh, that they want a commission to supervise the process of agreement-making between governments and First First Nations and truth-telling about our history. But there was really, I think, a sense amongst some Indigenous people, at least, that this was an acceptance of sovereignty where they, without a treaty being in place. Um, the Aboriginal Embassy uh, in Canberra issued a statement from the Sacred Fire called the Walkout Statement, uh, that was issued in, I think, July 2017, and it was basically First Nations people who reject the Uluru Statement of the Heart and its guiding principles. Um, it's a pretty staunch statement. It says things like the Uluru Statement is a reflection, there's a quote, the Uluru Statement is a reflection of the corrupt proceedings of the referendum council's regional dialogues and so on. So there was certainly a bit of pushback from some First Nations people against the statement from the heart. Mm. Um, so, in any event, there was a there was a report that came out uh, in a or I think shortly after or about the time of the Uluru statement from the heart that recommended a voice to Parliament, a constitutionally entrenched voice. Uh, and it, it, I'll just read a line from that. A constitutionally entrenched voice appealed to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities because of the history of poor or non-existent consultation with communities by the Commonwealth. Constitution, sorry, consultation is either very superficial or it is more meaningful but then wholly ignored. So the idea being, in effect, of the voice, I think, put simply, is that, well, the reality is, and I think this is fair to say, that you either get lip service consultation or you don't get consultation at all. And by having this process in place, Parliament and the government can be, in effect, given direct input from Aboriginal communities. Could I ask, uh, how did the idea of a voice eventuate? Like, is there some sort of international legal precedent that a voice exists constitutionally in other jurisdictions. I think the Canadians have got a statutory voice, and that's where they've adopted the, that. I think this so. model's adopted I think that's from where that. Where it comes from? Yeah, the yeah. the in Finland, the Sami Parliamentary Act 1995 created a constitutionally enshrined body that would ensure that the Sami people had a voice that could be heard by the national government, and the government was given a duty under that act to negotiate with the Sami parliament when developing laws on specific matters, the sorts of matters that would affect those people. Oh, so they've got like a sem- separate cameral kind of yeah. parliament for that uh, particular um, national nationality in that circumstance. Yeah. So Did you mean to say Sami parliament? 
Yes. Okay. Because yeah. that's that's interesting yeah. you should say that because at now, the time- Now, I can't read Swedish, so I, I may have missed- Sorry. Finnish? I don't know. Finnish, Finland. So, I don't, I'm not quite sure that's what the act says, but that's what secondary material that I've read about the act says. Okay, because there was some fear at the time, 2017, when the statement was issued, that it- amounted to and obviously this is getting clarified now once the debate has come we've got a new fresh government and the debate is actually coming to the to the surface because it's an agenda item for the new government but at the time when it was i guess effectively dismissed by the previous government and wasn't an agenda item up for debate there was a discussion that uh, we're not going to bring in the voice because essentially what it means is a third chamber in in the parliament I think that was a bit of a straw man argument, really, because it was a misrepresentation of what it was so as to shoot it down. Right. Yeah. And we that's might, based we, on, yeah. based on, like, that statement there. Like the, the Well, I mean, we might come to the criticisms. Okay. If we, we'll go through, and I think we'll come to the criticisms after we go through what the proposals are. I think yeah, it's probably yeah, yeah. a better way to do it. Great. But in, in further answer to your question, in New Zealand, and I think this is still the case, certainly the case a few years ago, um, there is a 121-member parliament... Uh, and there are seven seats yes. in that parliament that are dedicated to Maori people. I remember this, yeah. And there's sort of – it's interesting because there's sort of geographical areas, so it's representative in the same way that you've got your representatives here for certain seats. It's the same thing. The seats are obviously bigger because mm. of, there's, in effect, fewer people to vote those people in, so it's a larger – physical electorate, uh, but those people are elected to the parliament directly. Mm. Um, so, okay, so coming back to we now, as you said, Jim, have a new government, Commonwealth government, and there is the Prime Minister in a speech on the 30th of July of 2022 um, announced in effect that, or proposed in effect, that there be a constitutional amendment to establish a voice he set out some initial proposals for what the constitutional amendment would be. Uh, he proposed effectively the insertion of three clauses into the constitution. The first being, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Uh, astute listeners will be... will remind themselves that there is a section in the constitution 101 that says there shall be an interstate commission um and we know that there isn't an interstate commission uh -huh. so it's interesting that, it, that that same language has been used uh but so that was that was the first proposed section to be added the so second what was is, the interstate commission just out of interest this was sort of uh, Stretching my old constitution, Jim. You no, don't come please. on. You're, you're the most recent. The interstate commission was never this, touched it. There it was go. this thing that was to decide on trade trade between the states. Oh yeah, because uh, it, right? yeah, yeah, because interest interstate. There's all these there's all these problems between interstate trade and the constitution, and yeah. it all becomes a big cluster beep. Yeah. Yeah. So it's to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah, because and you're supposed to have. It's one of the sections is free, uh, trade, free trade between the states yeah. and so on. So I don't know whether any. I think people were appointed intercourse. for a brief time. Intercourse. What do they call it? Yes, that's the word they use. Commerce. No, they call it intercourse okay. in the yeah, constitution, don't they, do. they? Yeah. So anyway, that effectively commissioners are not appointed to that body. 
uh, despite the Constitution providing for its existence. Um, Probably should have uh, during COVID, but yeah. Mm, interesting. So uh, the second proposed clause is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice may make representations to Parliament and the executive government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And the third clause is the Parliament shall, subject to this constitution, have power to make laws with respect to the composition, functions, powers and procedures of the voice. So they were the three clauses and and the Prime Minister sort of put these forward as this is my initial idea of what these things should say, you know, needs to be some development. And he also proposed a question to be asked in a... Oh, my God, I've forgotten the word. Referendum? Oh, yes, referendum, thank you. In a referendum. <laughs> really? Um, and the, yes, just slipped my mind completely. And the question was... Oh, I had so plebiscite come into my head, which is... <laughs> I don't want to say. Oh, yeah. Um, right. Yes, in a referendum. And the question was, do you support an alteration to the constitution that establishes an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice? Now, I haven't gone back because I ran out of time and looked at what exactly a question to amend the Constitution has to look like. I know that 128 of the Constitution provides that after the passage by the Parliament of the Act, um, the proposed law shall be submitted in each state and territory to the electors qualified to vote. Uh, and... When the it also provides when a proposed law is submitted to the electors, the vote shall be taken in such manner as the parliament prescribes. So I don't know. It seems to me my reading of that is that it, you could ask the question, "Do you support the alteration?" But you have to put the clauses in for the electors to tick off on. Mm. But I know, I'm not a hundred percent sure that's true, and I'm not sure whether what is actually proposed is that that question be asked, then the voice be developed, and then another question be asked again. But that seems a little bit too much. So, anyway, um, this was set out in the speech. Uh, there is little really in the speech about what the voice would look like. Which speech is this? This is the speech at, that the PM gave. At the oh, Gama sorry. Festival. Oh, yeah. right, right, right. <clears throat> um, he did say... Writing a voice in the Constitution means a willingness to listen that won't depend on who's in government or who is Prime Minister. Mm. Uh, the voice will exist and endure outside the ups and downs of election cycles and the weaknesses of short-term politics. Although, as I've already noted, the Interstate Commission doesn't exist. So, query whether some government down the track could simply pass a law effectively abolishing it. So just on the Interstate Commission, yeah. So I just googled it. Yeah. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It was intended to exercise the chief functions of administering and adjudicating matters relating to interstate trade. The commission was established in 1912, became dormant in 1920, was abolished in 1950, re-established in 1983, and absorbed into the Industry Commission in 1989. Right. There you go. There you go. So does it still exist as a form of the Industry Commission? It says absorbed into the Industry Commission. So just flicking down. Mm. Well, I was the commission yeah. was, re was reconstituted by the Whitland government in 1975. 
with the envisaged role of inquiring into transport issues that arose due to the federal structure of the Australian government. Issues on the agenda included Victorian shipping to the Riverina, Bass Strait ferries, disruptions to Fremantle shipping to the eastern states in 1975. In this second incarnation, the Commission did not have any judicial power, but did have powers of arbitration and adjudication and investigating and reporting. The Commission did not become active due to the dismissal of the Whitlam government. In 1984, following the re-election of the Labor Party under Bob Hawke, the Commission received its appointments and was charged with investigating all matters related to interstate trade. Uh, and then it says, in 1990, the Commission was abolished with its functions transferred to a new industry commission, a statutory body. Yeah. So that's all Wikipedia. So at least from time to time, it hasn't existed. Mm. I've always wondered about, well, what happens if the federal government, which the federal government can abolish the federal court by statute, mm. what if it just stopped appointing high court judges? Can they do that? It seems, I mean, I mean, politically it's never going to happen, but as a matter of constitutional theory, if they can not appoint the interstate commission, then why can't they not appoint... I suppose someone judges. could take it to court and try to get an order that they do it. Yeah. If it's required by the Constitution. Yeah, because isn't there some sort of... Don't they have to perform their functions and duties under one uh, of the... And that would be a not performing your function and your duty? I forget what section I think it there's is. a minimum... Yeah. There's a three-judge minimum, I think. I think there's a three-judge yes. minimum, and then yeah. it can be more as prescribed by statute. Yeah. yeah. So surely if you fell below three, you could... You know, someone could litigate it. I guess so. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, um, going back to the things that were in the speech from the Prime Minister, um, it will be an unflinching source of advice and accountability. Uh, it will not be a third cham chamber, said the PM, uh, not a rolling veto, not a blank cheque, but a body with the perspective and power and the platform to tell the government and the parliament the truth about what is working and what is not. So that's the sense that we get from the PM's speech about what it might be. There was this body um, put, it's called the Indigenous Voice Co-Design Process that gave a final report to the government in July 2021 uh, that kind of... So it went around, it consulted about 9,500 people, about 95% of whom were Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, um, it did a whole bunch of consultation and it proposed, made some proposals about what a voice might look like. Uh, and they got a little voice going on right over indeed, there. Indeed, <laughs> speaking of voices. Um, and it proposed regional and local voice bodies with a government-funded, provided secretariat. Uh, and in effect, those bodies are caught under this proposition that in this report were to be sort of different at different local and regional levels and so not necessarily all the same appointment levels functions functioning different um and then it proposed a national voice uh and it proposed in effect uh that there be a national voice with 24 members including five members specifically representing remote regions and a single member representing a significant number of Torres Strait Islanders living on the mainland. Now, I have to stress, I don't know or think that the government has adopted this in any way, but this is the report that was provided back in July 2021 um, and presumably would be taken seriously as a model by, by any government designing 
what the voice looks like. And one of the criticisms made of the PM's proposal is that it is, in effect, devoid of that content. It just kind of kicks the can down the road to a parliament to make these decisions. Um, the idea is that the local and regional voices within each state and territory would collectively determine the national voice members from within their respective jurisdictions, um, rather than there being a direct election model to the national voice. Um, it sets out reasons for that that I won't go into, um, and the twos and pros and cons of that approach. Um, it describes the function as a uh, advisory body to the Australian Parliament and to the government. Um, there would be um, advice on areas that are considered crucial areas of legislation and pro policy development to Abs Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, and so on. Um, It would not have serve the the national voice would not have a service delivery function, or managed government funding or programs. It would just be advisory. Uh, it proposes again in this report that there be an obligation to consult set down in 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 an act uh, on a defined and limited set of laws, as well as an expectation to consult. Uh, on a wider group of policies based on a set of principles, uh, that there be transparency mechanisms in Parliament required so that, say, if an Act was introduced to Parliament, it says this has been consulted with the voice or the voice hasn't been consulted on this and so on. Um, and if there was advice given by the voice, that advice be tabled in Parliament uh, and so on. The... Report at least says the compliance of the Australian Parliament and government with these elements could not be challenged in court. Uh, the aim would be to support and not disrupt effective legislative and policy processes. The national voice would have no power to veto laws made by the Parliament or decisions made by the Australian government. I've read some criticisms or some concerns raised that... It, once it's in the constitution, you could in fact have constitutional arguments that say, well, this law is invalid because the voice wasn't consulted. Doesn't necessarily ring as making sense to me, but I'm not a constitutional or admin lawyer. Mm. Um, I mean, you might try. If you, if you weren't consulted on a serious piece of legislation, there might be some merit in trying to take that to the High Court, but it doesn't strike me as something the High Court would uphold quite easily and 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 it has to be legislation that's sort of narrowed down to issues facing uh indigenous aboriginal or torres strait islander people is that right that's right but again i mean so effectively any law could stretch well i mean doesn't every law mm. on, on some level you know hmm except might, as part of this proposal the idea is that they'll identify that's right. A set of policy areas. Yeah. 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 The parliament that are a particular right. Models. Okay. Yeah. It'd be like a terms of reference kind of deal for the for the voice, which you sort of might imagine might include like land and resource management, health, education. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. Languages. Justice issues. Yeah. Justice issues. 
but it's a bit of a difficult one to narrow down, isn't it? Sure is. Mm. Mm. I mean, corporations law, right? That affects everyone immensely Uh, and can have specific effects on specific communities. Yeah, and there's a lot of Aboriginal corporations, Aboriginal-controlled organisations too. Yeah. Mm. Just on that interstate commission issue, um, what I'm going to say comes from an issues paper that the UNSW, that's the University of New South Wales Indigenous Law Centre, has put out in a bunch of issues papers, which I really commend to our readers because it goes into a lot of these different um, issues and um, poses questions and also answers some of them. But just on that issue of whether a constitutional amendment can guarantee the existence of the body, um, the issues paper on the constitutional amendment notes that the Prime Minister's proposed amendment establishes the First Nations voice using language that mirrors the creation of the High Court of Australia in Section 71 and then goes on, some concerns have been expressed that such provision does not guarantee the existence of the body as desired, noting the reference in Section 101 of the Constitution to an interstate commission which no longer exists. This analogy is, however, flawed. The constitutional nature and function of the voice located within the political process do not raise difficult issues of compatibility with the separation of powers as the interstate commission and its adjudicative powers did. And the political momentum for establishment and continuation of the voice that would flow from specific popular endorsement of the institution at a standalone referendum creates a strong contrast to the interstate commission. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, I mean, I don't. Know. I mean, I take that, but that's not saying it. It would have to exist. Sure, the political momentum after the passage might be such that it exists for twenty years, but you don't know that it continues to exist after twenty-five years. Mm. I mean, the the more nasty scenario is that a government that no longer wants to consult with it whips up sort of a racist fervour, describes it as incompetent and corrupt, Mm. and then abolishes it. Mm. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Right? So these things happen. And Are we able to talk about, I guess, the the argument that the introduction of the voice means that there's no longer any prospects of a treaty because I guess the argument states that you're essentially accepting the ceasing of sovereignty uh, criticism and therefore uh, becoming a part of the constitution that you despise. Let's just let's just say that that's what the argument against it is. In order to become a treaty, uh, for a treaty to succeed under the UN Charter of Treaties, doesn't one of the bodies has to be a, a recognised nation within mm. the definition of the United Nations? And does an, uh, doesn't the Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait Islander people fall under such a category? Yeah, I mean, I can see why that perspective is important to a lot of Aboriginal people uh, who think about this issue. But I think in terms of our legal framework, I don't think sovereignty in any sense that you use that word when you talk about treaties exists under our legal system, right? You know, there's been a recognition uh, that... You know, there was people here and they had laws and so forth and land law in some respect in terms of the pre-existing state of affairs has been recognised as continuing in Mabo, but that's not a notion of sovereignty. So I can see why people 
have that view that it's trading off sovereignty because all of a sudden you're accepting that you're subject to this constitution if you support this. But I don't think it changes anything legally, right? Because our whole legal system is premised on the extinguishment of any alternative sovereignty. Yeah. I think that's the brutal reality of it. I don't know. I sort of wonder whether there should be a two-stage process, particularly in light of all those sovereignty issues and arguments where we first hear from Aboriginal people to see if they want it. Yeah. And then if they want it, then we can all participate in and vote. But don't you to think the Wallaroo statement of wasn't that, the heart yeah, wasn't is that the, case the of that? culmination of a deliberative process, consultative process amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders across the whole country with delegates and representatives and the coming together of people in Alice Springs for this really big meeting and Not the, the culmination no. of a process no. that generated consensus Not, to the extent no. that... 1,200 people, I think, were spoken to. That's about, what, 2%, sorry, 0.2% of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population. Mm. So it's it's not as if... It doesn't compare to a poll being taken, a vote being taken of all um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. I, I think... Except I'd, that if I, you go into the room as a participant in that process, you're coming presumably from a family, from a community where you can represent views more than just your own individual ones. So, like, the people who are participating in the process themselves are, I would say, necessarily coming to the table in a position able to represent more than just their own individual view. Sovereignty is a legal idea, but it's not. It's also a political idea that's divorced from any sort of practical legal meaning. It's really, like, mm. actually, we are here, you know, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Mm. I mean, you can say that, but you can say that as a sovereign nation that has a treaty with the people who've come and taken over this land. And that's a different zeitgeist. It's a different sort of way of thinking about the world. And how come that was never pursued? The treaty? Yeah. Well, it is. It's still being pursued. That's And that's the criticism a lot of people make of the of the statement from the heart. And it's like, well, it's giving up that. You're giving up the fight for that by accepting the voice. Now, the answer to that that's given in part is, well, no, this is something that goes alongside and facilitates the process of a treaty. Yeah, I mean, reasonable minds can differ about that, I think. And I think when we in Australia talk about treaty, it means different things to different people, right? So does sovereignty, I think. Yeah, so does sovereignty. So because I think a lot of people think... There's no possible way to rewind time to achieve sovereignty as it could have been achieved if there'd been some process in 1788 which actually involved Indigenous people being part of the conversation and being recognised. But they still seek sovereignty in a way that could be achieved now given the the re- reality that exists now. I've read case law where the judge has recognised um, uh, decisions made within a community that are outside our common law 
Well, that is actually just applying the common law. That's how the common law works. I mean, that's Marbo, right? Yeah, right. The common law will look at the law in an area and apply it if it can. Okay, okay. But it's never been a concession on sovereignty, right? No, right. I mean, I I think, and I've long thought, regardless of whether or not we have a voice, but it seems to me that our our sovereign king doesn't even reside here. And wouldn't it just be nice to replace the sovereign king with, say, an elected... Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person to be the elected head of our country, our sovereign, our parliament, have those weekly chats with the PM. That's a hell of a voice to have. Um, I've always thought that should happen. And, you know, in as much as the sovereign is the radical title owner, the custodian of the lands, who better Mm. than to have an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person in that position? Now then, if you need a voice alongside that, fine, but... In terms of sovereignty, and then you don't—I mean, you don't need a treaty then, or maybe you do. I don't know, but um, I think I think it's more, Stephen. You were saying that it's it's about resource allocation, so on. I think it's more than that. I think it's a sort of political statement. It's a statement about the nature of the state that Aboriginal people had a state and have a state that continues. And that's really that other part of terra nullius that kind of still hangs around like a bad smell that says, you know, oh, no, there wasn't any law here. It'd be nice to have that recognised. Mm. So. Well, that's it. That's it at the end of the day. I mean, the intentions behind the voice are pure and you would imagine come from uh, a right being wronged, a 200-year wrong that's trying to be... Re- yeah, trying to I mean, be- let's just remember the context of this whole proposal is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are not mentioned in the constitution at all. Exactly. They weren't at all part of the process to create the document. So Jacinta Price, who's a senator from the NT, who's really strongly opposed to The Voice, I mean, I think she has been publicly questioning the idea that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't have a voice. But but she's been pointing to the existing parliamentary representation, which obviously includes herself. And I seem to recall her the other day in the Senate was having a go at Penny Wong talking about, oh, well, maybe there should be an Asian Australian's voice and then I can go to them and hear what's good for you, Senator Wong. Well, I mean, that's like ridiculous. It's, it's not ridiculous. I mean, it's the, the way that that's presented is ridiculous and shouldn't be said in that way. Mm. But the point is made that actually you're making the suggestion that a body can represent what's best for a class of people on the basis of race. Oh, right. I meant the, the insult was ridiculous. Oh, no, the, the, the insult... I mean, you, I mean it's just sure, sure. conduct for a senator, frankly. But I think there's there's something to think about there. That the, the idea that a body can represent what's good for a particular race of people is, is an interesting idea. I mean, you know, does an Indigenous person who's in custody in, I don't know, in... New South Wales, out west, somewhere in New South Wales, do they have the same needs as an Indigenous person who works for Macquarie Bank? I mean, surely not. And what are we what are we talking about here when we're talking about representing all of those people in one body? Um, well, but hard, maybe that comes. Well, maybe that comes back to your point in that 
Well, right. Like, there, obviously, there is a desire to have a voice because there is such a wide discrepancy at the moment between Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people and non-Aboriginal people and non-Torres Strait Islander people. And then when and if the voice to parliament succeeds in bringing uh, sort of a convergence together, sorry, to removing the convergence between us and we're all on par, well, then there won't be any need for the voice and it can be Yeah, though I wonder if there's... Down. You know, a perspective coming more from a sovereignty perspective, which might say, no, there should always be a voice in recognition of the special status of Aboriginal people as having been here first and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so... It's not just a question of social conditions, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to make a constitutional amendment directed at improving the social conditions of a particular race of people, if that's what we're talking about. I don't know that that's easy. No, that's my about. words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, coming from a background where my ancestral lands were taken over by a genocide, if I was somehow offered the ability to voice the concerns of my people to the Turkish parliament, I don't think that would be enough for me. I think that would trouble me in some way. Like, I, I hesitate to comment on any of this stuff because what the hell do I know? Me you know? too. Yeah. Um, I intend to sit down with my Aboriginal friends and talk to them a lot and figure out my position. Yeah, because you have to have one, right? There's you have to have one because this is a referendum. Yeah. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's part two, section two, subsection <laughs> of the wigs. Law joke. It's great to be in your ears again. If you're at the gym, keep going. Keep hitting that treadmill. Uh, our next topic of discussion is the is another federal matter. Uh, the the introduction of possibly an anti corruption commission. Finally. And it goes to Felicity Graham. How are you, Felicity? Take it away. Thanks, Jimbo. So the Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, recently introduced the National Anti-Corruption Commission Bill to the Federal Parliament. It creates a new mechanism for achieving public integrity and accountability federally. It's probably the most significant law reform measure federally in relation to that issue of public integrity and government accountability in the last 30 years or so. Um, we've got other mechanisms that have been part of the national framework for a while, like freedom of information laws, which were introduced in the early 80s, which allow citizens to find out information about government decision-making and to access information in the possession of the government. And then back in the mid-1970s, the Commonwealth Ombudsman was created with oversight and complaints handling um, roles which, broadly speaking, are aimed at ensuring that Australian government entities and some private sector organisations act with integrity and treat people fairly. But with this bill um, introduced by the AG, the National Anti-Corruption Commission, or are we going to call it NAC or the NACC? I like NAC. NAC, okay. The NAC. NAC. Um, He brought in the NAC. He brought in the NAC. (laughs) Yeah, so the NAC um, 
basically be able to conduct rolling Royal Commission type inquiries into potential corruption across the Commonwealth public sector. So... I have some questions. You've got some questions, Jim. Can you define for me and our listeners, if that's okay, just exactly what is corruption under this proposal? So corrupt conduct is defined in Section 8 of the bill. It's a very broad definition. Okay. Um, It covers broadly the conduct of two categories of people. The first is conduct by a public official. So this is a parliamentarian, a staff of a Commonwealth agency, staff of the actual commission itself, and anyone acting for or on behalf of any of those people. And that's it. So that's the first category of people that it covers um, and where they engage in conduct that constitutes or involves a breach of public trust, abuse of a person's office as a public official or where that's the purpose of the conduct, misuse of information or documents acquired in the person's capacity as a public official and that form of corrupt conduct extends expressly to former public officials. So if you came into the possession of information in your role and then were no longer in that role but you misused the information or documents that you'd previously acquired, that would um, be caught. That's corrupt. Okay. And I just always thought associated corrupt with a, with a monetary value. Yeah, so then there's, a, there's even a sort of catch-all um, term of other conduct for the purpose of corruption of any other kind. So that's all focused on someone who occupies a position uh, as a public official. Okay. Then the second category of people whose conduct can um, fall under scrutiny are third-party actors um, or also public officials and where that conduct involves conduct that adversely affects or could adversely affect either directly or indirectly the honest or impartial exercise or performance of a public official's powers, functions or duties. Mm -hmm. Quite a lot to unpack Mm. there. Um, Just a few other things to mention before we delve into these definitional issues. Um, The conduct of a public official um, can be corrupt even if the conduct is not for the person's personal benefit. Mm -hmm. It can be corrupt even if it occurred before the commencement of the legislation. So the NAC will have jurisdiction over historical events that um, involved potential corruption or corruption. Um, So so, so it can still be corrupt even if it's not for personal gain. Correct. Mm. That's weird. I mean, you can imagine all sorts of scenarios, though, where someone subverts a public official or you sort of do the wrong thing in your job where you don't gain personally from it, but it's still very bad. Uh, Yeah, that's very bad. But doesn't sound... Is that corrupt? Yeah, I mean, in the ICAC Act at a state level, I mean, the definition moves far beyond, like, brown paper bags. Much of the definition is lifted from the ICAC Act, the mm. New South Wales ICAC Act. Mm. I'm just looking for differences, actually, while we're talking. Mm. But, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just one f- further and final kind of broad-level um, comment about the definition. The conduct that can be examined 
investigated can either amount to a criminal offence or can fall short of criminal offending. So um, the commission will have a certain role in relation to how it <clears throat> operates. It's not a court. It's not adjudicating criminal guilt. Um, but the conduct that it can investigate can engage um, conduct that involves criminal offending. That might then be also the subject of a criminal trial down the track. Just like ICAC. Exactly. Well, okay. So, well, I mean, this is, I think, the difference is that conduct is not corrupt conduct in New South Wales under ICAC unless it's a criminal offence, mm. a disciplinary offence or a reason to sack somebody or a breach yeah. of a code of conduct. So I don't think this act is limited in that way. Okay, so if you if you are guilty of corrupt conduct under the NAC, yeah, all right, then what laws have you broken? Federal laws or well, state laws? Uh, this is uh, if my reading of this is right, and the act is in the ridiculous ways that the Commonwealth drafters do thousands, well, hundreds of pages long and very poorly drafted. But it looks to me like any conduct that could adversely affect the impartial exercise of a public official's power is corrupt conduct. And that's a Commonwealth public official, right? That's a Commonwealth pub. So that's the nexus with the Commonwealth. Adversely affect the honesty or impartiality in the exercise or performance of a public official's powers. So there wouldn't be jurisdiction to look at state officials, for example. Yeah, okay. Unless there was some nexus, Uh, But then what happens to you? But, I mean... You're just a subject of findings... Yeah. And then you might be referred on for to where? investigation or prosecution, AFP. Okay, so it would be a federal... Yeah, federal so you, you presumably have to draft up... If it also up, amounts to criminal conduct. Yeah, so you'd have to draft up some new effect. criminal conduct federally as well, legislation, wouldn't you? No, no, well, they're not proposing that to create a new criminal offence of... Corrupt conduct federally. I mean, there's already a range of Commonwealth offences that Is cover... Is there? That oh, cover yeah, totally. yeah, yeah, corrupt yeah, conduct yeah, federally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like in the criminal code, there's a whole whole part or chapter on it. Okay. So to the extent that the NAC investigates corrupt conduct that falls short of criminal offending, they're not proposing to expand criminal liability mm. to whatever the jurisdiction of NAC covers. Does okay. that make sense? It sort of does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So interestingly, when when Griner introduced ICAC, went back in '88 or whenever it was. Anyway, I can't remember. Yeah. This, but when he introduced it, he said in the second reading speech, "This is in lieu." of criminal prosecution. It's hard to identify corrupt conduct in government. So we're going to have this wide-ranging inquiries to expose it in lieu of criminal prosecution. Mm. And over time, that's been undermined and mm. over and now we're at the point where you get these public inquiries followed by prosecutions, yeah. which is just a bit absurd in my view. Except yeah. it kind of helps to form briefs of evidence, right? Like you have these ICAC inquiries where... They ha- where you've got issues that haven't successfully been investigated by other agencies because they haven't got the powers. The matter comes to ICAC, there's a public inquiry, all these people are grilled in the witness box, change their evidence, are presented with all these contradictions, and then out of that, the Crown attempts to assemble a brief, right? But yeah. why couldn't so- that be done privately? I think it could be done privately, but you don't, on the argument, achieve the same public benefit. Well, and Which you, is deterrence, transparency, exposure of these matters, sends a very powerful message, I think. For well, sure. But and if you get the criminal prosecution, then you do get the exposure, mm. right? 
So why do you need the public hearing if you're going to have the criminal prosecution? And if you're not going to have the criminal prosecution, then the public hearing achieves those things. And mm. I think that was the way it was initially meant to operate. This idea of having a public hearing, having someone forced in public to lose their right to silence and then using missteps in that to charge them with offences, as has happened... I think is it, I mean that's that's the conduct of the star chamber like without hyperbole that's the sort of thing that you'd see in the star chamber. So well what powers does the commission have? Mm, so um, the can proposal we, Can we stay on the can we stay on the definition for a minute before sure. we go because yeah, yeah, I just I powers. just want to talk this through. Yeah. So the definition of corrupt conduct includes anything that and a public official includes a member of parliament. So if I, as a public citizen, as a citizen, go to my member of parliament and say, "I want this grant. Help me get this grant," I'm engaging in corrupt conduct. Yeah. Right. What about this? What about if the whip says you will vote on party lines in this matter, or we're going to disendorse you? Is the whip engaging in corrupt conduct? I think, on this definition, they are. Now, I don't Is know that whether that's what's in partiality threshold. Yeah. You are you are saying to a member of parliament you will act impartially, you will you sorry, you will act partially in accordance with the interests of your party rather than in accordance with your state of mind, with your with your honest approach to this. Mm. But do you think a judge would interpret partiality to mean that? Well, it's not a judge, it's a knack. It's yeah. Oh, sorry, the knack, the, the knack. presiding officer, whatever they are. Well, I I think I I don't think they will, but that's kind of de- well. It's interesting. They're not going to. The whip is probably going to get away with it, but where you get to that sort of really interesting line between lobbying and corruption, mm. yeah, there's going to be things that fall on the wrong side of that. I would have thought. Mm. And I mean, a lot of the public debate and discussion that has led to this bill being introduced has been premised on the idea that resource allocation decisions should be the subject of exposure if they're politically motivated. Yeah. Which has sort of long been our system, but now in terms of like dodgy grants, sports rorts, all this sort of stuff, is now kind of being reframed as corruption basically. Mm, So if I was the commissioner of the NAC looking at, you know, these definitions and trying to work out whether partial expenditure or what might be seen as partial expenditure decisions in grant programs is within my ambit. I mean, the kind of milieu that this has all come from might encourage you to have that view. Mm. It's a kind of attack on democracy in that sense, in the sense that you no longer have public official, you no longer have members of parliament acting, being partial towards the interests, say, of their electorate or of a member of their electorate in the way that we really perhaps expect them to be and really kind of binds them to the advice that they're given, say a minister is given advice by their department to act in a certain way. Well, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to act partially in the interests of, say, my government, um, my political government. Then, I mean, that that's... A, the end, not the end, but it's it's a step down on the ladder of democracy towards something that's mm. undemocratic mm. and perhaps technocratic in the sense you must do what you are advised to do or what the best option presented to you is by those who advise you. And I just worry 
that that's where this goes. You know, you get ministers of state hauled up before NAC in public mm. where they say, well, your, your, your advice said, you know, don't give this park here, but you gave the park here. Mm. Mm. So you're acting partially by giving the park. A bit well, like what happened in the NT with the Stella Maros thing. Have you guys heard about that? So that was a building in northern in, in Darwin which the NT government, Labor government, decided to give to the union movement, I think. It was like a kind of historical building in Dubbo. In and Darwin. W- in Darwin, yeah. Sorry, not Dubbo. <laughs> when the, the LNP got back in, they set up a commission of inquiry into it and basically exposed in this commission of inquiry that the minister who made the decision, Delia Laurie, had acted against bureaucratic advice mm. and she'd sort of chosen this option of gifting it and I think the commissioner ended up finding in some public way that she had done the wrong thing. I don't know if it was given the label mm-hmm. um, of corruption or but not. But that's what you have elections for. But that's what we have elections for. So I think when they interpret the breadth of their jurisdiction, they're going to have to grapple with what motivations are legitimate, even if they could be seen as partial. Mm. And I would have thought the interest of your constituency is a legitimate kind of motivating factor even though it might be seen as you acting in a partial way. Mm. You know, and similarly with a politician who votes a particular way because of a conversation about, you know, losing their pre-selection, that's got to be seen as legitimate rather than corrupt, doesn't it? Mm. Otherwise, yeah. the whole whole party system potentially breaks down. I know. Impar- impartiality and bureaucratic decision-making is a yardstick for government quality makes sense to me. But when you're talking about elected officials who are elected to be representative of their electorate and who are elected most commonly as a member of a particular political party and represent the views of that particular political party in their decision-making doesn't really work for me. They won't decide anything. They'll be like, nah, too hot. It's like, well, mate, we we voted for you for this. Mm. And they're elected to make choices, for example, about how to apply resources in circumstances where resources are not infinite. Yeah. So you have to make a choice. Yeah. You have to be partial to something. Mm. And there will be assholes who go in and dump a bunch of cash on a council. Yeah. And, and that's got to be, like, be a thing that people out. deal with at the election. Bastards. Yeah. Vote I don't them think out. you can deal with that through a corruption commission. Well, I think of corruption as lining your own pockets, using funds mm. to line your pockets, and that's that's corrupt conduct because it's a financial gain. That's why I, why I brought that up at the start because yeah. I always associated corrupt conduct with some sort of self-financial, you know, fraud, really. Anyway, so what, what powers will this commission have? So... It'll have quite broad powers to investigate corruption issues, um, which is whether corrupt conduct has taken place, is taking place, or is about to take place, I think. Oh, okay. Um, And that's in circumstances where the commissioner is of the opinion that the conduct could involve serious or systemic corrupt conduct. So it's not, it's got to meet that threshold. Um, and that's different to the State Act, isn't it? 
that doesn't have that threshold. So in the New South Wales ICAC Act, there's Section 12, Capital A, which says in exercising its functions, the Commission is as far as practicable to direct its attention to serious corrupt conduct and systemic corrupt conduct and is to take into account the responsibility and role of other public authorities and public officials um, in preventing corrupt conduct. So, you know, focus your attention here, Mm. but there's not... A so is that a post Canine amendment? Mm, that's a good question. Because uh, I remember Bolton was suggesting ICAC's jurisdiction at a state level should be limited to serious, serious corruption. And that was in the aftermath of the Canine affair where they went after her for something that, albeit she was a public official at the time, was not something... What was, what was her position? Head of the DPP? Or what was she was she? Crown prosecutor. Crown prosecutor. Yeah. So 12A was inserted in 2005 and I mean, amended sort of in 2008. event that occurred. That, oh, I remember reading yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. When's the last time you saw an ICAC when was report the that addressed decision? systemic corruption? I don't think I've ever seen one. There probably is one, but I can't think of one. What's this systemic corruption? You know, like there's... I don't know, you might say that, and I'm not saying that this is the case, but let's say that high-level bureaucrats in the state government were changing their advice because to meet the, suit the demands of the government of the day. That would be a systemic corruption issue. And that, you never see anything like that. I mean, what, what was the Wood Royal Commission? That was like systemic... Corruption in the police. Yeah. We yeah. should have a rolling royal commission into police, I believe. Yeah, well, we had one. When I mean, I, there is lots As in rolling, of, we should have a standing commission. I yeah, think. the integrity commission was that before they... I mean, there's lots of ICAC inquiries that don't get a lot of media. Yeah. Like, they're often down there concerned with bribery and brown paper bags and local councils. and. But I guess it depends what you mean by systemic. I mean, mm. Obeid was operating in a systemically corrupt way, I think. But... I, you know, albeit that it was manifested through, like a series of elaborate frauds. No, I mean, I mean, sort of, by systemic, I, I understand that to mean there is some structure in place that is permitting, mm. encouraging mm. corruption to yeah. occur, rather than a rogue individual is yeah. abusing mm. what powers are in existence. Or if there's a rogue individual, it needs to meet the serious threshold. Yeah. Yeah. So then, assuming you meet that criteria or the the commissioner forms that opinion, then there are a range of different powers um, to investigate ministers, parliamentarians, their staff, statutory office holders, employees of all government entities, contractors. There are search warrant powers. There are compulsory powers in relation to um, compulsory, compulsory evidence, compulsory provision of information and documents, um, is there going to be public hearings? Yeah. So the the default position, and this is in Section 73, is that investigations are to be held in private and then there's a twofold test that sets up when um, the Commission can hold a public hearing and that is where the Commissioner is satisfied that there are exceptional circumstances and it's in the public interest. I reckon that's bad to have an exceptional circumstances test. Because what does that mean what in does that it context? Mean? Like in a bail Especially context. in the context of an anti corruption yeah. body where it's too vague. It should be di- the test should direct itself to the subject matter and purpose of the legislation. So some criteria 
that is determined by reference to the point of the legislation. Yeah. Not exceptional circumstances. I mean, what does that mean? You might have some very compelling case to hold a public hearing, but it's not quite exceptional because we've had three of them lately. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Mm. You can also use it the other way. This is an exceptionally bad example of this, so we're going to do it. I mean, it's... Mm. Well, that, 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 that is an unusual formulation, right? If you look at all the bases, if you look at all the cases on exceptional circumstances, let's say you had a minister of the state who had directed mm-hmm. funds to his own or her own personal account. Is that an exceptional circumstance? To the legislation, I mean, I hope it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'd hope so. Yeah. The bill directs the commissioner's attention to some factors to take into account without limiting or requiring particular factors to be taken into account, but they are the extent to which the corruption issue could involve corrupt conduct that is serious or systemic, so how serious or systemic is the situation, whether certain evidence is of a confidential nature or relates to the commission or to the alleged or suspected commission of an offence. So that, I guess, brings into consideration some of the tensions between having a public inquiry by the anti-corruption body where there's likely or intended to be a criminal trial um, down the track. Um, Three other factors. Uh, Any unfair prejudice to a person's reputation, privacy, safety or well-being that would be likely to be caused if the hearing or part of the hearing were to be held in public whether a person giving evidence has a particular vulnerability, including that they're under the direct instruction or control of another person in a relative position of power, and finally the benefits of exposing corrupt conduct to the public and making the public aware of corrupt conduct, so the kind of deterrent effect. It's funny mm. that's put on an equal level with you know, the vulnerability of a particular individual. I, mean, I don't know if it is. I would have thought the weighting that's... of these things are not necessarily... Equal. I know, but it's one of what a range of non-exhaustive criteria. It's right at the end, and I would have thought that that's a fundamental starting point, really. Mm. Do you think that having a public inquiry is, or one purpose of having a public inquiry is also to bring about a a better review? revealing of the truth of a situation. In other words, if you have a private inquiry and the commission summonses persons A, B and C to provide information and give it private evidence to them because that's where their investigation has led them, but there's person D who has something really important to say about it but the commission never knows about person D, um, if you instead have a public inquiry, then person D knows about it and very well might come forward and say, hey, I've got something no. relevant to say on this? My answer to that question is, is a firm no. I think that nobody comes forward in those circumstances. I think that if we look at the way public hearings have been used by existing commissions, they tend to be in effect, show trials with the outcome predetermined. And you never get any real new thing coming out. And I've had a look behind some investigations in the course of some public inquiries in the course of doing criminal work arising out of them. And what you see often 
in the private inquiries a much more measured, much more honest approach to answering questions mm -hmm. than what you see in a public inquiry, which is got the full light of the media on it. You can't, you know, you change your answers in order to accord with that. Um, I think that the public inquiries really only serve one purpose, and that is drawing the corrupt conduct to the attention of the public, which is a noble purpose, to be sure. But I don't think they and act as an inquiry. Voices. Yeah, the one that I was involved in, well, the public inquiry that I was involved in did sort of have or worked in a way that uncovered new evidence. And that was because there was this conspiracy where a whole bunch of people were saying that they had made certain donations that they had not made. Most, if not all, of those people had given evidence of private inquiries and their evidence was sort of unsealed, I think. Um, all the ones I'm talking about were. But That's, when it came to the public inquiries, and I think part of this was the way that... I just say there's alarms that are not related to our discussion, <laughs> just so. The way that the commission structured the order of witnesses and the way the media reported it, I think had a brutal effect on some of the witnesses and basically led to them caving and then in some cases attending for more private inquiries or just changing their evidence in the public inquiry. Because I think it's harder to lie in a public hearing than it is in a private hearing with exposure and media spotlight and spotlight yeah mm. so but that's only one inquiry but in that one inquiry they cracked the nut basically I and they unearthed the entire conspiracy yeah. i think my fear with yeah. that with that is that that kind of thing i don't want to encourage that like to use the pressure of the media and the pressure of all of this for someone to make them change their story is as likely to produce an honest response as a dishonest change to the story. And it's, I, 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 mean, it I agree as a general proposition, uh, but whether that's so in any particular case, it kind of depends. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. it, may, it may be in a particular <clears throat> inquiry, it gives you an answer that's true, but how many times is it going to lead to people changing their evidence in a way that's not true? Now, is this the second anti-corruption bill that's been introduced in the last couple of years? Wasn't there one introduced by the coalition before the last election? Yeah, and it lapsed. Or it, had, it, had, it lapsed, mm. and it had some watered-down features, which I think this one's addressing, particularly around who can refer matters. Because I remember there was like, it had to be a certain individual to refer yeah, a matter like in the public last one. referrals, I think, under the Right, that's the what it was. Version. Yes. Yeah. But, but so what's, under this no version, it was, um, was only the AFP. It can either be self-initiated okay. by the NAC. It can... An investigation can arise from a referral of information from a member of the public or anyone, basically. Oh, my gosh. Um, and <laughs> you can also um, anonymously provide information which can give rise to a, an investigation. Now, isn't do you have to be a certain individual to refer ICAC matters in New South Wales? No. Oh, okay. I, I, mean, they're the wrong. I just thought they'd be inundated then if, that was, if it was referrals from the public, which I mean, is they fine. don't have to take it up. Of course. So of there's course. a sort of triaging process um, and there's this concept of a preliminary um, hearing where many of the compulsory powers still um, operate as if it were a full investigation sure. hearing. Um, and ICAC and that, does a lot of those at a state level. 
Like oh, it's a bit of a misnomer yeah. that oh, ICAC at a state level is public, but this one's going to be private because ICAC does a lot of private hearings that never lead to public hearings. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and so the preliminary stuff can the preliminary hearing can be to assist the commission to decide how to respond. So, you know, is this really something that we should be referring to the AFP or is this something where we should be sure. holding a full inquiry? Um, and also to decide whether it meets that threshold of serious or systemic corrupt conduct. Is there anything about protecting people who refer matters? Yeah, a few things. Um, so... In Section 24, um, if a person makes what's called a NAC disclosure, so refers or provides information about a corruption issue or gives evidence to NAC, um, the person is not subject to any civil, criminal or administrative liability, including disciplinary action for the NAC disclosure. And um, there are some other provisions as well, but they have an absolute privilege in proceedings for defamation in respect of the NAC disclosure. Um, can't terminate a contract on the basis that a NAC disclosure constitutes a breach. Um, so there, there's sort of some general protections. Um, there's a specific provision in relation to journalist sources. Mm. Um, so a journalist or their employer cannot be compelled to reveal their source um, where that source expected anonymity or there was an implied understanding of anonymity. Um, But there's still a search warrant power. Um, So So things could spill. Well, presumably if a journalist has written something down or recorded an audio um, interview with their source, then those things could be found in a search warrant. Um, So the extent of these protections in relation to journalist sources, whistleblower type protections, protections of people in relation to making disclosures, that's, I think, quite a point of contention with the crossbench. Um, So... The pathway for this piece of legislation to come into effect is either through support from the coalition or support from the crossbench um, to the Greens and the independents. <coughs> and there are kind of different, I think, priorities. So the sort of public-private hearing um, balance that's been struck in the legislation, some people have posited as reflecting the fact that Labor is going to try to get it through with the coalition support. Mm. Um, But the Greens and independents seem to still be pushing for some bolstering of protections for whistleblowers and people making reports, for example. Um, But no legal professional privilege. That's, yeah, so you can't make a claim of legal professional privilege you can't um, refuse to answer questions because of self-incrimination privilege. Um, so that privilege, those privileges are abrogated by the, That's by the proposed weird. legislation. Yeah. Isn't um, that like breach of procedural fairness or something? Yeah, it's not unusual for self-incrimination to be mm. abrogated but with some 
protection so that what you say or the information that you give can't be used against you in criminal proceedings. What about privilege? Oh, so sad. Yeah, it's the um, same in the State Act. It used to be unusual. Mm. Yeah. It's now everybody's got the power, like, mm. you know, the fisheries people can do it. But it used to be unusual. You used to have those privileges. But yeah. now if you go up to your lawyer and say, listen, someone's asking me to do this, is it corrupt or not? Um, that fact that you asked that question can be used against you. Yeah. Crazy. So you can claim privilege over conversations or advice in relation to your response to a NAC summons, for example. Yeah. Mm. And but not pre-existing but, matters. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that I understand they can do, and this is the state ICAT can do, is the New South Wales ICAT can do, is that there's no more cabinet confidentiality. Mm. So that they can get in and get cabinet minutes and mm. ask you about what was said in cabinet and can't, that kind of thing. It's incredible. Can't equity step in? Like, am I crazy here? No. What and the f- There's nothing that can be done. And so you put that together with... These are the, all equitable doctrines, right? Well, no, cabinet confidentiality. Is, but it's confidentiality. It's, yeah, it's this, it's um, public interest immunity. So mm, traditionally, right. the courts have respected okay. the government's right to have that. But the statute now, overrides equity. Right? The so, parliament, yeah, that's right. The parliament is now saying oh, okay. we're going to have a different nature or our government, our executive government, is no longer going to enjoy confidentiality over what it discusses mm. in cabinet, which is a pretty huge change to the Commonwealth government structure, um, although you don't see it discussed in those terms in practice. It is because what happens is ministers will become cognizant of that. So like, yeah. you can't say at the, at the cabinet table now, mate, we're not doing this. This is just suicide. You know, this is political suicide. Well, I worry about saying things like that now. Mm. You know, and that means political suicide is code for the people don't want it, mm. which is democracy. But so the, these sorts of democratic norms will be are being extracted from our government, mate. That is interesting. Yeah, scary. Mm. And you can't protest outside. What? On one reading of this act of this bill, you to cause a disturbance outside the NAC. Oh, who threw that in? Oh, apparently, it's in some other legislation for similar oh, bodies. Do we have to photocopy so all pro- every every if legislation? You, you have, if you cause a disturbance, and I, I think it'd be read down to not include a protest. But on on one view, sure. causing a disturbance outside and outside the NAC is contempt. Mm-hmm. What contempt? Contempt of NAC. What? As if it, as if it was you some sort proceed. of court. Oh, mate. <laughs> there was some silver. I can't remember who it was who refused to stand when the commissioner of ICAT <laughs> came in because. <laughs> Stuff you, it's not a court. Yeah, fair enough. And it's not a court. You know? It's just a bunch of people sitting around a desk. It, it really is. For 20 hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're back for the final topic of the evening. It's been so, this is a marathon, this one. You still on that treadmill? Keep going, we're almost done. Stephen Lawrence. Okay, I'm talking about a new decision of the High Court called SDCV and Director General of Security 2022, HCA32, was handed down on the 12th of October. Mm. It's another High Court decision about the extent of anti-terrorism laws, I suppose, in a way. Okay. So it's concerned with a 
um, a Lebanese man uh, who migrated to Australia on a partner visa. And it transpired that a number of his extended family were involved in ISIL, uh, ISIS. Yep. And some of his relatives were, in fact, convicted in Australia of planning terrorism acts. So he ultimately lost his visa um, as a consequence of this Commonwealth government view that he was in some way linked to ISIS. And that occurred through a procedure that is a creation of the ASIO legislation where the Director General of ASIO has the power to issue what's called an adverse security assessment. And these ASAs, as they're called, have a variety um, of roles under the Commonwealth Statute Book, but one of them is to inform the Minister in making character revocation decisions under Section 501 um, of the Migration Act. So the Minister, after being informed by this adverse ASA, moved to cancel uh, this fellow's visa pursuant to Section 5013 and 6G um, um, of the Migration Act uh, on the basis that the Minister reasonably suspected the appellant did not pass the character test and was satisfied the cancellation of his visa was in the national interest. Uh, so this fellow was then served with the notice of visa cancellation and the stated grounds accompanying the ASA certificate. He then had the right to go to the AAT. So he sought review in the AAT of the decision to cancel his visa. For the purpose of the review in the tribunal, the ASIO minister then used another power in the AAT Act in section 39B2A, which stated that disclosure of some of the contents of the documents relating to the ASA decision would be contrary to the public interest because it would prejudice the security of Australia. He lost in the AAT, so the AAT upheld the decision to cancel his visa. He then took advantage of a, um, another provision in the AAT Act that gave him an appeal on a point of law to the federal court. In that appeal, he then had to deal with section 44, sorry, 46 of the AAT Act and Section 46 of the AAT Act has a number of provisions to it, but the relevant provisions, the constitutionality of which was in issue in this proceeding, uh, were subsections 1 and 2. And what they basically say is that when a certificate has been issued uh, in respect of information, and there's a variety of different certificates that um, it refers to, but it included the one that had been issued in respect of his information, that, and this is in subsection 2 of section 46, it states, if there is in force in respect of any of the, do any of the documents a certificate, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, certifying that the disclosure of matter contained in the document would be contrary to the public interest, the Federal Court of Australia or the Federal Circuit Family Court shall, subject to subsection 3, do all things necessary to ensure that the matter is not disclosed to any person other than a member of the court as constituted for the purpose of the proceeding. So what that basically means is he having lost his visa, that having been affirmed by the AAT, 
in part on the basis of secret information that he couldn't see, that when he appeals on a point of law to the federal court, there's this provision in section 46, which means that only the judges can see the material. Mm. So his argument in the high court was section 46, subsection two is in breach of the separation of powers. It's in breach of the separation of powers because it's, it's an accepted doctrine in Australian constitutional law that you can't interfere with the institutional integrity of a court. Oh, chapter three, yeah. You can't bestow on it a function that's inconsistent with the functions of a court. You can't, for example, you know, pass a law or give a jurisdiction that requires a court to act in a procedurally unfair way. Which so makes total case. sense. Yeah. And it got voted down. Yeah. So this argument was ultimately unsuccessful. Um, okay. 4-3 in the High Court. And uh, the plurality, so the Chief Justice, uh, Kiefel, uh, Justices Keane and Gleeson, they in essence found that, or they went back to the sort of notions that underpin procedural fairness, which basically say that there has to be a practical injustice in order for something to be procedurally unfair. And they reasoned in this way. They said that Section 46.2 did not cause practical injustice to the appellant uh, because if Section 46.2 did not exist, and they said you can't separate it uh, from the right of appeal that's created, uh, but if Section 46.2 did not exist... The certified matters, so the material that was confidential, would still have been covered by public interest immunity. Yeah, so what they basically said was there's no practical injustice because the relevant provisions of the AAT Act gave him a right of appeal, a statutory right of appeal, that you can't separate the secrecy provision in Section 46 to from the overall statutory right of appeal. If there hadn't been a statutory right of appeal, then he could have judicially reviewed the decision. If he judicially reviewed the decision, then public interest immunity, absent the statutory provision, would have been called in aid by the government and they would have kept those documents from the tribunal as well as the parties. That then um, on judicial review in the federal court or the high court, he wouldn't have been able to make good his ground of review because the court wouldn't have, have had access to the material because public interest immunity claims, unlike this particular regime, mean that the court generally wouldn't see the information or wouldn't see it for the purpose of determining a ground if the claim was upheld. So therefore, you can't say there's a practical injustice when all that's happening is that a statutory right of appeal is limited in in a particular way. That mm. was sort of the essence of what they found. Doesn't that duck Couldn't the question? A, a yeah. practical injustice for the tribunal making the decision, like the appeal court making the decision on appeal to not have all of the material on which the original decision was made? Couldn't that be a form of practical injustice? Yeah, I mean, under this regime, the AAT had the material and the federal court judges had the material, but, but he didn't have it. I know, but yeah. wasn't the plurality's decision 
tied up with this idea of a hypothetical scenario where the court doesn't have the material? Yeah, because they were saying that absent the statutory provisions that he took advantage of to launch his point of law appeal to the federal court, he would have been in judicial review territory. Uh, Then it would have been a public interest immunity issue. He wouldn't have had the material anyway and the court wouldn't have had the material either. Mm. So therefore, there's no practical injustice that a statutory remedy exists that has a particular mechanism. Oh, so there's, where a, the court there's no it, question you know. to answer. That's what they're saying. Yeah, and they also, and also they said that it's long been accepted that there's exceptions to procedural fairness based on questions of national security and so forth. So what the judges in dissent said, and there's a number of judgments, but Gagler states it, I think, pretty clearly. He says that these separation of powers principles are not to be applied in a way that suggests near enough is good enough in the sense that if there's a statutory right, you can't complain of a want of procedural fairness because it's better than what you would otherwise have had access to. By way of judicial review. Mm. Yeah, and he Mm. says you apply the standard, you apply it to to jurisdiction that exists and jurisdiction that is given. Mm. And if you apply that analysis, this is wanting. And he certainly wasn't saying that you could never have a circumstance where national security would trump access to information. But he points to the absolute terms of Section 46.2, mm. which basically says the federal court must keep this from the past. There's a blanket prohibition. Yeah, there's a blanket prohibition. Mm. And he contrasts it to other statutory regimes where the court's got a discretion, the court can have regard to national security and decide that it can be given to the party or perhaps appoint yeah. a sort of independent sort of counsel but here is a direction make submissions on it but here it's absolute yeah. it just mm. can't be given yeah. so Gagler starts his dissenting judgment the question in this appeal is of a kind which has arisen in numerous national jurisdictions on numerous occasions since the notorious events of 11 September 2001 to what extent is the ordinary principle that a party to litigation is entitled to know the evidence relied on against them capable of legislative modification in the interests of national security and then His Honour goes on to say, questions of that kind have been addressed in the United States under the rubric of the constitutional guarantee of procedural due process. They've been addressed in Canada by reference to constitutionally enshrined principles of fundamental justice in the EU and in the United Kingdom. They've been addressed by reference to the human right to a fair hearing and then goes on to make the analysis in the Australian constitutional context of Chapter 3. But, Steve, I'm just wondering, where does this decision sit in the context of the way that these other jurisdictions have dealt with this question? Is is this an outlier decision in terms of um, saying that the procedural fairness um, requirement isn't, um, isn't needed? I mean, I think it tur- the, I mean, this decision turns on you know, particular intricacies of Australian constitutional law. Um, So the statutory regime uh, that we've got, which is you've got an administrative decision where certain things will be kept from you. You've then got a tribunal to merit review that where certain things will be kept from you. You can then mount a legal appeal, but the court must keep things from you regardless of the circumstances. I mean, I think that regime sort of compares in an unfavourable way 
to more nuanced regimes in other jurisdictions. Mm. But this case kind of, in a way, doesn't really turn on the policy merits of that regime. It's more about this proposition that you can't vest a court with a requirement to act in a procedurally unfair way under Chapter 3 or under Chapter 3 implications. And how does that sort of play out in this particular statutory context? Yeah, that, that's why I thought they ducked it, the, the plurality ducked it, because it just seems like they're saying, well, because you're giving someone a right additional to a right they already have, then you know, they can't complain of impractical injustice. I mean, if we bear this back, you could... So if there's an area where there's no judicial... There's nothing but judicial review, so prerogative, writs, that kind of thing, the parliament can pass a law that says... You have a right to appeal, but in that appeal, the minister can send an email to the judge that you're not allowed to see. Mm. And that's okay because there's a new appeal right that you didn't have. I mean, that can't be right, Mm. can it? Yeah. Chapter two, you're stepping on chapter three's toes. Yeah. (laughs) We can end it there if you want. I don't know. I, I I haven't quite formulated this thought yet but i've expressed it previously on this podcast there's like i just feel like admin law is going into a sort of an odd place in australia and it's bringing the court into disrepute in this way slowly but surely they they, they signed up for it they agreed with it yeah i understand that and i i mean i understand i guess the logic of the court but I just think we need some sort of wholesale reform of this, or we need to get rid of it and go back to the broggity writs and nothing else. Mm. Yeah, because which may be on the cards. This half baked thing is is really troubling. Right. So but- the way that Gagler stated it was: so he put the he frames the argument of the plurality, and then says. Um, I cannot accept that mode of analysis. The with jurisdiction and without jurisdiction comparison proffered by the respondents is to my mind beside the point. It can be no answer to an argument that a process required to be followed in the purported exercise of jurisdiction is unfair to say that something is better than nothing. Chapter 3 of the Constitution does not admit of, quote, grades or qualities of justice, end quote. Quote, the circumstance that an institution has been established by legislation as a court means that any jurisdiction conferred on it is necessarily conditioned by the requirement that it observe procedural fairness in the exercise of that jurisdiction. So he's completely rejecting, you know, this dichotomy between uh, a judicial review jurisdiction under the Constitution, which presumably must be exercised in compliance with procedural fairness as a Chapter 3 implication, and some sort of additional supernumerary statutory jurisdiction that can be limited uh, in a particular way. He he just rejects that. I like this guy. Mm. The Commonwealth Parliament is not constitutionally required to confer any federal jurisdiction on any court under Section 76 or 77, but whatever federal jurisdiction it chooses to confer is constitutionally incapable of being exercised by a court other than in accordance with a judicial proso- judicial process. Procedural fairness is a requirement to be observed within a judicial process. Yeah, I can't help but feel I'm missing some nuance in the majority judgment because that, that has to be right, doesn't it? It's like you can't simply say because you're vesting an additional right, somehow the court cannot operate in the ordinary way that it ought. Mm. Right. There must a, be some a high court from the 70s would never allow this to happen. 
That's my view. Eighties. Eighties. Sorry. Eighties was the golden. If you can seek judicial review in a Supreme Court or elsewhere. Yeah, that's in circumstances right. where you might otherwise appeal from the local court to the district court under the Crimes Appeal and Review Act, it doesn't matter. The district court doesn't have to act as a court and provide procedural fairness because you could just go to the Supreme Court instead. Mm. Yeah. So th- is, is that? I think so. So this seems to be the essence of the pluralities reasoning at 83. So they talk about in 82 how section 46 1 and 2 work together. Then they say that section 46 of the IAT Act stands or falls in its entirety, highlights the artificiality of the appellant's complaint and helps to demonstrate that section 46 2 was not apt to cause him any practical injustice in the determination of his appeal to the federal court. That is because the effect upon his appeal of the forensic consequence of section 46 2 can't be considered separately from the forensic advantage conferred by section 46.1. One comes with the other. To the extent that the benefit of section 46.1 may be thought to outweigh the limitation imposed by section 46.2, so that a person in the position of the appellant chooses to pursue an appeal under section 44 rather than the other available avenues of challenge, no practical injustice is suffered. There is only the choice of a remedial procedure that is less advantageous for an appellant than it might have been, but nevertheless more advantageous for an appellant than the alternatives, none of which can sensibly be said to be practically unjust. Each available, each alternative remedy is simply what the law provides, that being indisputably a matter for the parliament. The choice of remedy was a matter for the appellant. So it just seems to be saying it's not practically unjust because if the whole thing didn't exist, you just go somewhere else that would be less advantageous. Than that scheme. Yeah. And then yeah. that raises the question well, can Parliament then offer you two choices? One that's horrible, one that's less horrible. And thus, the one that's less horrible is okay because there's the choice that is horrible. Mm. But, but it also just means that Parliament can create jurisdiction in courts where they're not actually acting as courts. Yeah, it's weird. Is that yeah. right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they're just saying that non-disclosure in the AAT is the sort of starting point and when you go on this special error of law appeal, that's the starting point and that's because some views been expressed about national security and there's no practical injustice because you choose to embark upon the appeal knowing its limitations. I mean, it's worth noting in, in the defence of the majority, I think you've already said this, Stephen, but it's worth highlighting that there's always been exceptions for national mm. security in court. Like, there is public interest immunity and courts have respected that for a long time. Mm. So there's that kind of underpinning this. And the advantage that he's got in this era of law appeal is unlike in a public interest immunity case where the claim's upheld, he can argue there's error in the sense that the material didn't justify the decision. Mm. Whereas in a successful PII claim, the material's not before the court. Mm. So he can't argue that. Mm. 
So, but that's no answer to the suggestion that the section's too absolute because, I mean, what section 46.2 creates is the possibility that the court looks at the material and says there's no compelling national security reason why you shouldn't have this material. Sure, but I can't give it to sure, you. Sure, the Director General's taken the view that, that you shouldn't and I can't set that decision aside. Mm. That, that might be within his, his or her lawful sort of breadth of decision-making power. But I would give it to you, but I can't give it to you because of the effect of the provision. Mm. And, and you might come up to with some argument unfair. based on it that I haven't thought of. Mm. So but, a court's going to make... I might determine in your favour if you had the opportunity to make yeah. it. So a court's going to make decisions without procedural fairness in the sense of the party not having the evidence, even though the court thinks the party should have the evidence. Yeah. It's hard to see that as procedurally fair. And also, I, I kind of, I'm not sure that the assumption that the court having the evidence, giving you the ability to say the evidence doesn't justify the decision in the absence of you having seen it, is necessarily better for you. Because it might be that that evidence is so horrible that if the court had it, it, it would be persuaded to to rule against you, whereas mm. in the absence of it, it might That's not. That's true, yeah. You know, you can't assume that it's better to be able to make that argument. You mm. might give that argument up. Well, I did a case, I was involved in a case that went to the High Court where an improperly issued certificate uh, applied to documents like his criminal record and all this highly damaging stuff that you wouldn't, you wouldn't want before the decision maker. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We are finishing the show off with that time again. Fun things. It's time to get off the treadmill, get the to get the cold towel around the neck, and listen to this one. Uh, who do you got, uh, Manu? You going through your calendar? What fun things have you got? Oh, my fun thing. Uh, yeah. What have I got? My Wing Chun master is christening his son tomorrow. Nice one. And I've been invited. I'm going to go to the christening. I've been to a christening in a long time. Love a good christening. Cool. Uh, yeah. But I think I think you say Wing Chun is your fun thing. No, well, Wing Chun. I'm training. To, I got struck in the jaw yesterday in the course of a, spa, a sparring session. Are you doing really that hard. thing? Is this like Bra- sp- Brazilian jiu-jitsu type? It's, type? No, it's more like sort of what Bruce Lee did. So oh, that yeah, kind yeah, of stuff. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm training for sparring at the end of next month. You got, 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 got hit in the face. Yeah, My right. chest is bright yellow from Jeez. bruises that I've got from training. You're getting into it's it, aren't you? Fantastic. Good for you. So much fun. Wow. How long have you been doing it for? About two years now. Are you serious? Yeah. Far out. Go, Manny. Pretty good. Far out. Yeah. He's a, he's a master. Ah, little Ravi's awake. And Felicity and Ravi, what's uh, what's your... Well, we know what your fun thing is, but elaborate. <laughs> tell us. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've got another special guest in the studio. How, hello, hello, Suravi. Hello, Suravi. She's trying to have a go at the microphone. Go for it. The mic is yours. <laughs> the floor is yours. Uh, she's one month old today. She's very beautiful. Mother's Day. Yeah. Happy happy month there you day. Go. Yeah. There, there you she go. goes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, squawks. that's gorgeous. The official wigs photo for this. A new, a, new, a new little wig, a new member of the wig family. Congratulations. Well, that's great. Um, Ed Flick and Suravi. What an exciting month you guys have had. Yeah. I uh, I'm just looking at at it in awe because I'm like, okay, cool. That's how big they are in a month. I'll, that's how I'll feel in March next year. Okay, cool. Right, cool. That's what I got to look forward to. Uh, 
Steve-O, what's your fun thing, mate? Mate, I've just had most of the last two weeks out of court, and it's been school holidays, so lots of hanging out with Damien, which Lovely. has been fun. Cool. And state labour conference this weekend. Oh, so we said fun things, Steve. That's fun. <laughs> now, Damien, you were saying, is a practitioner of a martial art as well, you yeah, were telling Taekwondo. me. Okay, Very right, just, right. You weren't it. interested in... He loves it? Mm. You weren't interested in doing that, Taekwondo, Manny? No, Wing Chun is a really... Um, yin martial art it's very internal very relaxing and that's why I enjoy it fair enough because you would have had a period of time where you were going through what martial art you would choose no my master is someone I just went coming let's go okay and and, yeah yeah, fair fair enough what about you you? what's your fun thing I'm just a living life enjoying my time I'm on a study break Uh, it just feels great to be on a break it really does like I, anyone who gets the chance to be on a break, I I I, I encourage it. <laughs> Thank you. Just getting 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 our photo shoot done while I. Uh, <laughs> no, that's good. Listen, what a great episode! That was a marathon, two hours, two hours with a newborn. Right? <laughs> I thought this was going to be a thirty-minute show. Killing it, Felicity Graham. Hats off to you. Hats <laughs> off, Manny, Stephen. Uh, uh, look, everyone, it's fantastic to have you. We'll, we'll see you next month. I hope. Take care. Au revoir. Au revoir. Au revoir. All right. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz. 